0: You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Put on then, as God's chosen ones... Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. We've all heard the truism, surely you have, that hurt people hurt people, or hurting people hurt people, There's a sense in which a phrase like that just kind of makes common sense, right? It's common knowledge. It's kind of clear that if you're unhappy about your life, if you're unhappy about certain things that have happened in your day or just in your past, it tends to color the way that you react to those around you. I don't mean to, this to be a, a justifying of a defense of hurting people. Like sometimes it can be used, I think, inappropriately to say, well, oh, it makes sense. They're hurt. That's why they hurt somebody else. And so it kind of makes it uh, okay. No, it isn't. It's not a defense of hurting people. But I think we can all kind of recognize it's limited wisdom, that there is something about if, if you've been hurt by mean people it is likely that you will follow in those steps and hurt other people in a sort of revenge against the world, maybe possibly. And it isn't always true. There are lots of great stories of those who have been hurt who turn that around and don't hurt others. But we can all think of cases where this happens, that it colors who you are, what you do. At the core of that thinking is this idea that who you know yourself to be or who you think you are GREATLY impacts the things that you do. Who you know yourself to be impacts what you do. And that insight is central, I think, to this passage. In our text, we've got this. In contrast to last week, which was the vice list of putting all these things away, put to death whatever is earthly among you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, lust, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You must put those things away along with anger, wrath, malice, deceit, all these things. Do not lie to one another. All of these vices that you must put away. As a believer in Jesus, that's a device list. Well, in contrast to that, this week, we have a virtue list. Those are all things you should not be doing, and here's all the things that you should be doing. We've been called in this chapter to set our minds on Christ, to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We've been called to put to death the flesh and to put on Christ. We have This list tells us then specifically what that looks like, to put on Christ. We are, as God's people, the church, to be people with compassionate hearts, full of kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We are to bear with one another. We're to be forgiving one another. These are all well-known qualities, right, of Christian character, or they should be. Maybe not often recognizable in those who claim the name of Christ, but they are known qualities that a Christian, most of the time, even in popular culture, if someone behaves in a way that doesn't include one of these qualities and claims to be a Christian, even the popular media would be able to say that is not a Christian way for them to be behaving. What we may not notice, though, is the, the, how revolutionary of a lifestyle these characteristics would have been in the ancient world in a different culture than ours. We don't realize this, but the success of Christianity has so colored the, the Western world that these qualities take on a general moral rightness. That there's a sense in which this list of qualities is kind of well understood to be just, that's how, what a good person is like. They are humble. They are not self-serving. They look for the benefit of the other. They are kind. They are gracious. They have compassion. And that—that that is seen in our Western culture as just the qualities of a good individual. But that is, we don't see it. That is a lot of times the result of, or in large part, a result of the effect of Christianity, Christendom, In the Western world, as it spread through Europe and then jumped the ocean and we built America and there's all this concept of a Christian sense of morality. This would not have always been viewed as virtue. Humility would not necessarily have been known as something good, but a sign of weakness, to be humble, to be meek. To put others before you is a sign of weakness as opposed to an honor culture or whatever that would say that, no, we must be first. We, we put ourselves forward. To have your heart ache with compassion for others was a sign of weakness and vulnerability. It's far wiser and far more profitable for an individual to look after themselves Their rights, their interests only. But Christianity comes on the scene in this radical view of following Jesus and laying down your own interests and rights even for the benefits of your neighbor. So this is revolutionary thinking. As followers of Jesus with our eyes set upon him, we are to have compassionate hearts. And the the Greek there, that word, it has more to do with like your bowels, your guts, when it's saying compassion, we say hearts because it makes more sense. We think of our hearts in the English language of our center of our, our feeling. But in the ancient world, it was more like this, this like a deep sense of compassion. We are to have compassionate to, compassion down to the deepest part of us. We are to care deeply at a gut level for each other. That's so why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Is the idea there is not to somehow work up corresponding emotions like, okay, this person's sad, so I, I need to work on uh, trying to find sadness. So this person's happy, so I need to work on finding happiness. The, the idea is that you, we love each other so deeply and authentically that when you weep, I am sad with you. And that when you are happy, I actually am happy with you. It's not something that I cook up or manufacture, but it is there. Compassionate hearts. Compassion is automatically engaged with the joys and trials of the lives of those around us. Along with this genuine love, we're to be people of kindness, humility, meekness, patience. All of these sort of related to each other at some level. And we, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, that... Those who follow Christ ought to count others more significant than themselves. There is to be in our demeanor a respect for others and a valuing of others. This is how we are to go on. And as Paul says in verse 13, we are to forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven us, we are to bear with one another and forgive one another. And just in case we don't know what that all really means, he puts one sort of belt around all of them, and he says these things are all bound together by love. Love for others is the super glue that holds all of these qualities together. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Not just some generic peace, but the peace of Christ And to be thankful. It is quite a list of virtues. That was, I know that was that was a lot. That was just flying through a general kind of these are these are the virtues that a Christian is to put on. But a list like this then makes us naturally ask how are we going to do this? We are are told, we are commanded, put to death what is earthly among you, and put these things on as put these things on. How are we going to go and live out all of these virtues? Is Christianity now, okay, so here's what we've done we've said, don't do the vices and do the virtues, and so I hope you all brought your backpacks in this morning, because what you're going to do is you can start loading yourself up with all of these things that you must now go out and do, and by the strength of your own willpower, you got your checklist, and so hopefully when you walk out the doors this afternoon, you can start checking it off. Oh, I was kind, check, I was kind of somebody. Oh, I had compassion here. Um, Oh, I, I, you know, I was whatever, I had meekness in this area. Are we just putting on burdens that we are to go out and then do by our own willpower. Certainly, will is involved. Your own will, your own decision to do these things is involved. I couldn't see how you could go out and be unwilling to be compassionate or will not to and then accidentally be. I can't imagine you could go out and will, I don't want to be kind, I'm not going to be kind, and then whoops, I was accidentally kind. So, of course, willpower is involved there. But is that what Christianity is? Is it just a mere deciding of this is the type of life I want to live? No. By no means is that what Christianity is. We have to notice Paul's flow of thought. He does not say, do these things to become. He does not say, do these things to then become. He says, live like this because of what you have already become. He does not say, do these things to become. He says, live like this because of what you have already become. Where do I get that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Right there at the beginning of our passage this morning, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and Beloved, The order is not do the, put these things on so that you may become God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says no. So then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, in verse 12, do these things. Put on then all of these things as what you are. You don't do these things to become what you want to be. You put on these things and you walk these things out as a result of what you already are. When you read through this passage, you can almost throw those things away. Like it's some sort of, I don't know, cute phrase that he's using for the church. Uh, It's God's chosen ones, uh, let's see, uh, holy and beloved, do this. They can almost be throwaway words. Like, you know, you have your little pet names for your kids or your spouse or whatever. Just kind of a, a throwaway word. You've called them that for so long you don't even think about it anymore. That's not what Paul is doing here. Put, put on then, he's saying something very specific. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is who they are. Three powerful descriptions. Chosen ones, holy and Beloved. Now, I want to be careful here, because I don't want to overstate this, but what Paul is saying, every, what Paul is saying is that everything you do will be directly tied to your understanding of how God sees you. Everything you do will be directly tied to your understanding of how God sees you. Christianity is first and foremost, not about a change in your behavior, but a change in who you are. Christianity is not first and foremost about a change in your behavior, but first and foremost, a change in who you are. This is not some new new age change merely in the way you see yourself. Not like, okay, so now I'm going to positive think and uh, I'm just going to create this new identity for me and I'm going to speak my new me into existence. Not that kind of seeing yourself. This is a change in the way that God sees you objectively, who the, how the creator of the universe, what his position now is towards you, not just sort of, some sort of positivity or some positive thinking, not a change in the way that you see yourself, but a real objective change in the way God now sees you. You can look back at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says, You who were dead and your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, speaking of Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Where were we? In trespasses. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Where were we? Under a legal debt. A record of debt that stands against us. And that he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. The gospel has taken you from a dead, rebellious trespasser under a debt that you cannot pay and has brought you to life. Has brought you to life. What has happened is not a mere change in behavior, but a change in who you actually are. Not dead, but alive. Not under judgment, but in his favor. Not apart from him, but adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and brought into his family. You are a sinner saved by grace, brought to life through faith in Jesus Christ. If you think it's up to you to become one of God's people... Like as though, okay, so we're going to take this vice list and this virtue list, we're going to make our checklist, and by working hard at these things, I'm going to become one of God's peoples. If, If that is the way you view religion, if that's the way you view Christianity as a religion, they will lead you either to legalism or license. It'll either lead you to legalism, which is saying, okay, here's all the rules I've got to keep, and you're going to march out and work hard to get them. And then when you fail, it's going to lead you to license, which is basically just saying, well, it doesn't really matter. The rules, whatever, throw them away. I've already failed them. I'm going to plunge into doing whatever I want to do. And then once you hit a dead end with license... You think, okay, I'm going to try legalism again. I'm going to make the list and I'm going to do all the things right. And then you start charging down legalism until you fail. And then you jump over to license again. You're like, nobody can keep these rules. I give up. I'm just going to charge my own way. Hopefully God will forgive me anyway. And you jump back and forth if you think it's up to you to become one of God's people. Which brings us back to our starting truism. Because I want to submit to you the idea that truly loved people love people. Truly loved people love people. Paul says it way back in that verse 13 or in, in chapter 3 verse 13. He says that we should forgive others as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must forgive. So Paul recognizes this under this, this this truism of forgiven people, forgive people. When you really understand your forgiveness, like the parable that Jesus tells of the man who was forgiven this, this debt, uh, this, this huge debt by the ruler, and he has it all wiped away, he's forgiven, and then he goes and somebody that owes him a nickel, he strangles him and throws him in jail and punishes him because he won't pay him back his nickel, and how the guy doesn't get... That out of all the forgiveness that had been shown him, he should have turned and forgiven. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. But those who truly have been forgiven, who understand their forgiveness, go and forgive. And likewise, those who really see the great love with which they have been loved, they then go and love. Forgiven people forgive people. Loved people love people but notice the kind of love with which God has loved us when we look at these three words put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved God's chosen ones what an interesting word there what an interesting phrase and it's fascinating for a couple of reasons the first one is the reference to choice God's chosen ones This isn't a description of the believer's choice of God, but of God's choice of them. It's incredible to think about. We get all caught up in in free will and and your choice, and it's up to us. But the way that the biblical doctrine speaks of this is, is of God's choice of his people. The doctrine, we call this the doctrine of election. And sometimes people pick up this doctrine of election and they become completely arrogant about it. Like it only... And if you become arrogant about the doctrine of election, it only proves you don't really understand God's election. We think by saying election, we think picking. And we assume that there is some sort of merit or value that reflects that that on upon the one that you elected, that you chose. It's the way we choose. We have two decisions and we think, well, I like this one and not that one. And so I elect to eat here instead of here because it had better that it had more favorable circumstances to it. That is the way we operate. But that is not God's method of operation. God's election is not based upon uh, favorable situations or circumstances within the individual. God's favor is an unmerited favor. That's why it's called grace. If we take take God's election, we take God's favor, and we say it's because of certain intrinsic qualities in certain people and not in others, that doesn't make it grace anymore. That makes it election based upon favorable circumstances. We are a, a religion of grace. God's choice is by his unmerited favor. God's favor is unmerited. It's why the doctrine is called unconditional election. God is not up in heaven and saying, when people meet these certain standards, then I will choose them. God in his sovereign love chose. There were no conditions that the individual has met for God's election. It is simply his sovereign choice apart from any merit on the part of the individual. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it this way, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 2.16 says it like this. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law Because by works of the law, somehow meriting favor, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. It's fascinating because God is choosing. God is pouring His grace out as He desires. Secondly, it's fascinating because this designation is given to God's people throughout all of redemptive history. This phrase of chosen ones goes clear back to to the Israelites wandering through the wilderness being referred to as God's chosen ones that he has rescued out of Egypt. All throughout history, God's people are a chosen people. God is expressed in Deuteronomy in talking about that it was not... uh, Their numbers, it was not that they were a more favorable nation. Is there there a more grumbling nation than Israel as they wandered through the wilderness as though God didn't know this is what they would be like? Yet God chose them as his people. And we have this going on and on throughout. I have Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I, I have hated. Why? God chose Isaiah 41 says this this same realization that God's people are his chosen ones. John chapter 15, the way that Jesus speaks of gathering his disciples. He says, have I not chosen you? 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, Peter talks about you are a chosen nation, a holy people. It's the way Peter refers to the church. We are his people This universal gathering of saints for God for himself is based solely upon his mercy and his grace. It's the way he has always operated throughout your whole Bible. It isn't one kind of God in the Old Testament, different kind of God in the New Testament. All along, God has been sovereignly saving people. This universal gathering of saints for God himself is based solely upon his mercy and grace. And to think... Every one of us listening this morning, every one of you, every one of us that is embracing Christ as our savior and treasure do so because God purposed it. It's astounding and it's dangerous. Very dangerous. It's very dangerous. But dangerous for a reason maybe different than what you think. It's dangerous because when you realize that God is the one who moved in your life to save you. You no longer have any bargaining chips with God. If you buy in with a 50% 50 share, you say, you know what, God, I'll take, I'll invest my good deeds to get your love for me. When you buy in with your sort of of capital, then you have something to bargain with. You say, God, I really, you know, I I bought in for this amount of shares, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to owe everything to you. But if you're saved by grace, if there's nothing in you that merited God's favor upon your life, simply he decided to put his love upon you, you no longer have anything. It leaves us wholly indebted to him because he is the one who has done the saving. We didn't trade into this thing. God rescued us in by his sovereign grace and power and it leaves us wholly indebted to him. We are, the verse goes on, God's chosen one, holy means set apart for him and for him alone. This is what God has done. He's made us holy through the work of Christ. We have not made ourselves holy, but Christ has made us holy in his sight. We are beloved, beloved, Some translations would say, dearly loved. Do you know, we sang this song, how deep the Father's love is for you? It was not a love provoked by some action in yourself. It was a love provoked in the very own heart of God for you. You know this with with children. My kids, you know, there isn't like I've got some sort of checklist out. That every day they do these certain things, then I'll then okay. Today I love you. Tomorrow might be different. Today I love you. They came out of the womb needing nothing but help from us, right? Dependency. And what did we overflow with for them? Love, love. Did they merit it? Goodness, no. They were trouble, (laughs) but yet they receive it. God, God's love comes to us not out of merit, but out of the abundance of his love, out of the abundance of his grace and mercy that he would look on sinners and send his son to save them despite the fact they actually deserve the opposite. He rescues them. Why? Because of his love. Not your merit, not my merit. Not because I've impressed him. Far the opposite. But because he abounds in love and has rescued his people what is this love first John four ten says in this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins we think that if I operate in these loves or if I love God, I'll provoke him to love me. It's exactly the opposite way around. It is in seeing God's love for you that then provokes in us. If you can have eyes to see this incredible love, apart from your merit, apart from your deserving, based solely upon his grace and mercy, he sent his son to live the righteous life you should have lived but didn't, die the death that you deserve upon a cross, so that through faith in his work you can be forgiven of your sins, made righteous in his sight, all upon his, motivated out of his own love. If you can see that, in this is love, not that we've loved God, that he loved us. And in seeing yourself that way, knowing the truth, the objective truth of the gospel and what God has done, then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassionate hearts. As one who is loved deeply and greatly and astonishingly loved, go in love. In 2008, this is a weird cut, but in 2008, Lenny Kravitz released an album called It's Time for a Love Revolution. I have no idea why that came into my head, thinking about Lenny Kravitz' Love Revolution. But It's a great album, underrated Lenny Kravitz. But anyway... uh, this idea—it's time for a love revolution—and you'll talk, you'll hear it's popular, popular today to have a kindness revolution, and it's all about you know going out and, and doing acts of love or doing acts of kindness. They all focus on what we should be doing, but the revolution must be grounded on something bigger than just what you do. I agree—it's time for a love revolution, time for kindness revolution, whatever. But those revolutions all must be based on something bigger than just us by the strength of our own will going and doing them. They first must be based upon the reality of what has been done for us by God through Christ. The true love revolution is when sinners are confronted with their unloveliness and God's love for them through Christ despite themselves. When you are able to humble yourself enough to see that it isn't your great choice of God, but his gracious choice for you, that is an illumination that changes everything. When you truly know this love, when you truly see and grasp this love, then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, we can walk into this world liberated to love even as we have radically been loved. Let's pray. Father, help us have eyes to see this. What a humbling truth from your word this is. The idea that in your sovereign power, you could have done anything. Adam and Eve fell, you could have wiped the world out of existence and you would have done nothing wrong. There would have been no sin in you to act righteously and demand justice. But what you did, you put this this plan that was before the foundation of the world, you fulfilled it to send your son to redeem sinners not upon their merit or their observation of the law, but according to your grace and your mercy through faith in your son who merited righteousness, who fulfilled the works of the law so that those clinging to him might be given his righteousness. God, what a mercy, what a grace, what love. That's why John exclaims, I think it's beginning of chapter 3, maybe 2, I don't know. What incredible, see what kind of love the Father has loved us that we should be called the children of God. What incredible love this is. Father, give us eyes to see it. Give us broken hearts before it that we might walk out into this world and put on display your incredible love. Move in our hearts, we pray.